trying to free your mind, Nia. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to Origins. This is episode 68 and I'm your host, Paul. This week's episode is entitled The Bridal on the Neck of the Sea. Some other stories we'll be looking at include Lunar Bats, 19th Century Meet the 21st and Music Memory Connection Has Been Found in the Brain. From the Mail Online in the UK, Found, the gene that could grow new teeth and ancient diets of Australian birds point to big ecosystem changes. Those and other stories on episode 68 of Origins. Today's first story comes from thenewscientist.com and it was emailed to me by Ton. Why sustainable power is unsustainable and it's written by Colin Barris. Renewable energy needs to become a lot more renewable, a theme that emerged at the Financial Times Energy Conference in London this week. All those scientists are agreed that we must cut carbon emissions from transport and electricity generation to prevent the globe's climate becoming hotter and more unpredictable? The most advanced renewable technologies are too often based upon non-renewable resources, attendees heard. Saprotik Gua of IBM told the conference that sales of silicon solar cells are booming with 2008 being the first year that the silicon wafers for solar cells outstripped those used for microelectronic devices. But although silicon is the most abundant element in the Earth's crust after oxygen, it makes relatively inefficient cells that struggle to compete with electricity generated from fossil fuels. And the most advanced solar cell technologies rely on much rarer materials than silicon. The efficiency of solar cells is measured as a percentage of light energy they convert to electricity. Silicon solar cells finally reached 25% in late December, but multi-junction solar cells can achieve efficiencies greater than 40%. Although touted as the future of solar power, those and most other multiple junction cells owe their performance to the rare metal indium, which is far from abundant. There are fewer than 10 indium-containing minerals and none present in significant deposits. In total, the metal accounts for a paltry 0.25 parts per million of the Earth's crust. 
Most of the rare and expensive element is used to manufacture LCD screens, an industry that has driven indium prices to $1,000 per kilogram in recent years. Estimates that did not factor in an explosion in indium-containing solar panels reckon we only have a 10-year supply of it left. If power from the sun is to become a major source of electricity, solar panels would have to cover huge areas, making an alternative to indium essential. The dream of the hydrogen economy faces similar challenges, said Paul Adcock of the UK firm Intelligent Energy. A cheap way to generate hydrogen has so far proved elusive. New approaches, such as using bacterial enzymes to split water, have a long way to go before they are commercially viable. So far, fuel cells are still the most effective way to turn the gas into electricity. But these mostly rely on expensive platinum to catalyse the reaction. The trouble is, platinum makes indium appear superabundant. It is present in the Earth's crust at just 0.003 parts per billion and is priced in dollars per gram, not per kilogram. Estimates say that if the 500 million vehicles in use today were fitted with fuel cells, all the world's platinum would be exhausted within 15 years. Unfortunately, platinum-free fuel cells are still a long way from the test track. A nickel-catalyzed fuel cell developed at Wuhan University, China, has a maximum output only around 10% of that a platinum catalyst can offer. A new approach announced yesterday demonstrates that carbon nanotubes could be more effective as well as cheaper than platinum, but again it will be many years before platinum-free fuel cells become a commercial prospect. Biofuels, like ethanol, fermented from maize, are the most infamous examples of the doubtful sustainability of supposedly renewable forms of energy. This time the non-renewable resource at risk is the world's arable land, Osilio Bourne of Imperial College London said at the meeting. Again, there are potential solutions, but none that are ready for market. Biofuels from cellulose or even lignin can be derived from inedible plant material and wood rather than food crops. Algae grown in outdoor tanks continues to attract attention and extracting biofuel from marine algae or seaweed could sidestep land use issues altogether. Renewable energy technologies remain the great hope for the future and are guaranteed research funds in the short term. But unless a second generation of sustainable energy ideas, based on truly sustainable resources, is established, the renewable light could be in danger of dimming. The following article was emailed to me by Adrian, and it has an Australian theme, as you can tell by the theme music. It's from thesciencedaily.com. Ancient diets of Australian birds 
point to big ecosystem changes. And this article comes from the archive and is dated July 20, 2005. A shifting diet of two flightless birds inhabiting Australia tens of thousands of years ago is the best evidence yet that early humans may have altered the continent's interior with fire, changing it from a mosaic of trees, shrubs and grasses to the desert scrub evident today, according to a University of Colorado team at Boulder. The unprecedented ecosystem disruption is now thought to have led to the extinction of Australia's large terrestrial mammals which disappeared shortly after humans colonised the continent about 50,000 years ago, said Professor Gifford Miller of CU Boulder's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. Scientists have shown there were no significant swings in the continent's climate during that period, leading most to believe that humans had a hand in the extinctions through overhunting, spreading disease or by altering the vegetation of the vast interior through systematic burning. Using isotopic studies of fossil eggshells from both indigenous emus and the extinct ostrich-sized Geniornis, a new study by Miller and colleagues published in the July 8 issue of Science magazine shows that the ecosystem's flora changed swiftly and dramatically after humans arrived. The analyses which scientists used to pinpoint particular plant groups ingested by the birds indicated that emus living before 50,000 years ago preferred nutritious grasses, characteristic of milder temperatures and warm summer rains, Miller said. After 45,000 years ago, the eggshell evidence showed emus successfully switched to a diet of mostly shrubs and trees, characteristic of drier conditions, he said. But according to the research team, Geniornis, which also preferred the nutritious grasses prior to 50,000 years ago, failed to make the dietary switch and became extinct shortly after humans arrived, he said. The opportunistic feeders adapted and the picky eaters went extinct, said Miller. The most parsimonious explanation is that these birds were responding to an unprecedented change in the vegetation over the continent during that time period. The researchers analysed nearly 1,500 fragments of fossilised emu and Geniornis eggshells dating back 140,000 years from three different regions in Australia's interior, including Lake Eyre, Port Augusta and the Darling Murray Lakes. Each region has a distinct local climate and geography, he said. They also looked at carbon isotopes in fossil wombat teeth collected from the Port Augusta and Darling Murray sites, where such teeth often are found in association with fossil bird eggshells. While the analyses showed the diet of the vegetarian wombat consisted of a much larger proportion of the grasses favoured by emus and geniornis prior to 50,000 years ago, wombats, like emus, successfully switched to other vegetarian food sources after 45,000 years ago. Neither overhunting nor human-induced diseases, the two most widely cited alternative agents for a human-caused extinction event in Australia, 
would result in the dramatic changes at the base of the food web documented by our datasets, wrote the authors in Science. The reduction of plant diversity, however it came about, would have led to the extinction of specialised herbivores and indirectly to the extinction of their non-human predators. In January of 2005, Miller and colleagues published a paper in Geology suggesting burning by ancient hunters and gatherers triggered the failure of the annual Australian monsoon over the interior thousands of years ago by altering the flora enough to decrease the exchange of water vapour between the biosphere and atmosphere. Lake Eyre, a deep water lake in Australia's interior that was filled by regular monsoon rains about 60,000 years ago, is now a huge salt flat that only occasionally is covered by a thin layer of salty water. The earliest human colonisers in Australia are believed to have arrived by sea from Indonesia about 50,000 years ago, using fire as a tool to hunt, clear paths, signal each other and promote the growth of certain plants, Miller said. More than 85% of Australia's large mammals, birds and reptiles, weighing more than 100 pounds, went extinct shortly after humans arrived, including 19 species of marsupials, a 25-foot-long lizard and a Volkswagen-sized tortoise, he said. The study shows that the environmental footprints of humans can have very large and unexpected consequences, which I think is relevant to what is happening with human activity on Earth today said Miller. A cumulative series of small changes can have unintended large-scale consequences, in this case a complete restructuring of the ecosystems. And from the damninteresting.com website comes an article written by Zach Jordan on August 25, 2006. The Bridle on the Neck of the Sea. In the grand old year of 1492, Christopher Columbus set out from Spain with a fleet of three tiny ships. His journey began in August of that year, but it was March of the next before the old world heard again from Christopher Columbus. Time taken? Nearly eight months. Over a century later, in September of 1620, the Mayflower departed England on its historic voyage to the New World. In May of 1621, it returned bearing news of a relatively successful mission. Total time taken? More than nine months. Over two centuries after the Mayflower, in 1850, the Western world was in a state of dynamic change. 
the Industrial Revolution was in full swing and the world was optimistic. The first railroads had been operating profitably for over a decade and steamships plied the rivers and coasts of America and Europe and a network of telegraph wires had spread across territory on both sides of the Atlantic. Where once it had taken weeks to transmit news across hundreds of miles of land, it now took minutes. The world, it seemed, had shrunk. And between the two continents where it had once taken months to deliver news, it now took months. 19th century communication had hit a brick wall. The fastest way to get a message across the Atlantic was still floating and steam-powered, and it looked like things were going to stay that way unless someone was willing to take some huge risks. As well-connected as Europe and America were internally, they were still cut off from each other, just effectively as they had been for centuries. Even with the advent of the steamship, Atlantic crossings were still risky and of unpredictable length. Fortunately, for the mid-18th century, there was one man who not only saw the possibility of instant transatlantic communication, but was willing to put his formidable assets to work to make it happen. Cyrus Field was the embodiment of the Victorian American dream. He was a self-made man with a taste for business and one of the wealthiest men in New York City. He also had the benefit of nearly limitless charisma drive, imagination, and some would say block-headedness, all of which proved to be indispensable for the project. If you can imagine a cross between Andrew Carnegie and Donald Trump, substitute a chin curtain for the comb-over, and you'll have a good picture of Cyrus Field. He was that rare example of a brilliant businessman, salesman, with the philanthropist's heart. Fortunately, Both sides of his personality saw the benefit of transatlantic communication. Of course, there was plenty of money to be made, but Field knew that good communication could solve many of the problems between distant countries. For example, the bloodiest battle of the War of 1812, while technically an American victory, was fought two weeks after the Treaty of Ghent had been signed. This event and others like it offered proof that news in the 19th century simply couldn't travel quickly enough. Armed with his notable charisma, Cyrus was able to collect enough investors to begin the project by 1854. Initially, the sum of $1.5 million was pledged to the project. In contrast, the entire budget of the United States that year was under $60 million. This monumental feat of engineering required technology that was not only in its infancy, it was derived from technology barely into its toddler years. No one knew if it was even possible to send a signal through more than 2,000 miles of cable. The concept of resistance, while known, had not yet been scientifically defined. No one knew how much an armoured electrical cable weighed, or whether any ship in the world had the payload capacity to carry its entire length. Fortunately, Cyrus was ignorant about all of this. He hired the best minds in the world, including Samuel Morse and William Thompson, later known as Lord Kelvin, and told them to make it happen. Field's small group of engineers would soon learn that a well-armoured nautical cable weighs over one tonne per mile 
resulting in a total weight of nearly 2,500 tonnes to span the Atlantic. Adding to this problem was the fact that no ship currently in existence had a payload of 2,500 tonnes. For the first three attempts, steps were taken to reach a compromise between cost and quality. Corners were cut during the construction of the cable, and two ships began the massive undertaking of laying it. Unfortunately, the results were not encouraging. During the first two attempts, the cable snapped due to machinery inadequacies, which were heightened by rough weather. The third attempt was a technical success, but the cable stopped working less than a month later. This failure was blamed on an operator who upped the potential to several hundred volts, blowing a hole in the cable somewhere in its 2,000-mile length. For the fourth and fifth attempts, Cyrus Field was able to purchase a ship, and not just any ship. Cyrus purchased the largest ship in the world, the recently built Great Eastern. And if this in itself does not seem impressive, consider that this massive vessel held a distinction of being five times the size of the next biggest ship in the world. This was the nautical equivalent Spruce Goose, dwarfing all other seagoing craft and weighing in at 32,000 tonnes. The extra weight of the cable was a drop in the bucket of this leviathan. After ten years of effort using this monstrosity of a steamship, as well as the technology that had been developed in response to the previous failures, everything came together on July 28, 1866. The Atlantic Cable was stretched across the ocean floor from Ireland to Newfoundland, a distance of 2,000 miles. It was a resounding success, wildly celebrated on both sides of the Atlantic. Speeches were made, songs were written, and the public's appetite for instant communication was whetted. Within months, another cable was laid. By the end of the century, 15 cables crisscrossed the Atlantic. It would be nearly a century after the first successful cable was laid that transatlantic telephone communications effectively put the original cable stations out of business in the early 1960s. It is a testament to the brilliance and sheer determination of Cyrus Field that from that day in 1866 to this, America and Europe have never again been out of direct communication. And just as a bit of a treat today, I'm doing two articles from thedaminteresting.com. I haven't sort of done many in the last couple of episodes, so I'm on a bit of a catch-up crusade. This one's entitled The Theory Balls of Naga, and it was written by Alan Bellows on October 22, 2005. Supernatural phenomena always seem to be met by photographers who possess a supernatural ability to botch a simple photograph, and the Naga fireballs phenomenon of the Mekong River in Thailand is no exception. Images of these glowing egg-sized orbs are always grainy, indistinct and from a distance. But one factor does lend these fireballs the credibility that its supernatural cousins lack 
thousands upon thousands of eyewitnesses every year for over 100 years. In fact, they have been observed by so many that their existence is not really debated, rather it is their cause that prompts lively discussion. Locals claim that these fireballs are the product of the Naga, a large magical serpent who patrols the river. Every year, around the end of October, hundreds of locals and tourists gather to watch the pinkish-red glowing orbs emerge randomly from the river and soar into the sky without a sound or smoke trail. The number of fireballs varies from year to year, but according to locals, the fireballs have occurred annually as far back as generational memory can reach. The attempts at scientific explanations leave much to be desired, such as the theory proposed by Manus Kaniskin, a doctor from Nong Kai. He strongly believes that fermenting sediment on the river's bottom causes pockets of methane gas to form, and that the Earth's position in relation to the sun during those days of the year causes them to rise, then spontaneously ignite in the presence of ionised oxygen. But other researchers dismiss this claim, pointing out that the rocky river bottom doesn't have much sediment, and that the water's turbulence would break up any such methane bubbles before they reach the water's surface. A 2002 study using robotic submarines indicated that the methane theory was at least viable, but did not address the question of how the bubbles could reach the surface intact. There is also the very real possibility that the fireballs are man-made, but the architects of such a hoax would have to be clever indeed to avoid detection for these hundreds of years. And if you go to the show note at www.origins.info and click on the link to episode 68 and then the link to this article, you'll find a couple more links at the bottom of the article if you'd like to read more. Jeremy Sue, writing for the www.livescience.com website, has posted this article in the health section. A music-memory connection has been found in the brain. People have long known that music can trigger powerful recollections, but now a brain scan study has revealed where this happens in our noggins. The part of the brain known as the medial prefrontal cortex sits just behind the forehead, acting like recent Oscar host Hugh Jackman singing and dancing down Hollywood's memory lane. What seems to happen is that a piece of familiar music serves as a soundtrack for a mental movie that starts playing in our head, said Peter Janata, a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California, Davis. 
it calls back memories of a particular person or place, and you might all of a sudden see that person's face in your mind's eye. Janata began suspecting the medial prefrontal cortex as a music processing and music memories region when he saw that part of the brain actively tracking chord and key changes in music. He has also seen studies which showed the same region lighting up in response to self-reflection and recall of autobiographical details. And so he decided to examine the possible music memory link by recruiting 13 UC Davis students. Test subjects went under an MRI brain scanner and listened to 30 different songs, randomly chosen from the Billboard Top 100 music charts, from years when the subjects would have been 8 to 18 years old. They signalled researchers when a certain 30-second music sample triggered any autobiographical memory, as opposed to just being a familiar or unfamiliar song. This is the first study using music to evoke autobiographical memory, Janata told Live Science. His full study is detailed online this week in the journal Cerebral Cortex. The students also filled out the details of their memories in a survey immediately following the MRI session, explaining the content and clarity of their recollections. Most recognised about 17 out of 30 music samples on average, with about 13 having moderate or strong links with a memory from their lives. Janata saw that tunes linked to the strongest self-reported memories triggered the most vivid and emotion-filled responses. Findings corroborated by the brain scan, showing spikes in mental activity within the medial prefrontal cortex. The brain region responded quickly to music signature and timescale, but also reacted overall when a tune was autobiographically relevant. Furthermore, music tracking activity in the brain was stronger during more powerful autobiographical memories. This latest research could explain why even Alzheimer's patients who endure increasing memory loss can still recall songs from their distant past. What's striking is that the prefrontal cortex is among the last brain regions to atrophy, Janata noted. He pointed to behavioural observations of Alzheimer's patients singing along or brightening up when familiar songs came on. Janata says his research merely tried to establish a neuroscience basis for why music can tickle memory. He voiced the hope that his and other studies could encourage practices such as giving iPods to Alzheimer's patients, perhaps providing real-life testament to the power of music. It's not going to reverse the disease, Janata said, but if you can make quality of life better, why not? And from the dailymail.co.uk website, found the gene that could grow new teeth. And this is an article written by Fiona McRae. A breakthrough by scientists could see dentures bite the dust. Researchers have pinpointed the gene that governs the production of tooth enamel, raising the tantalising possibility of people one day growing extra teeth when needed. At the very least, it could cut the need for painful fillings. Experiments in mice have previously shown that the gene, a transcription factor called CTIP2, is involved in the immune system and in the development of skin and nerves. 
The latest research from Oregon State University in the US adds enamel production to the list. The researchers made the link by studying mice genetically engineered to lack the gene. The animals were born with rudimentary teeth which were ready to erupt but lacked a proper covering of enamel, the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences reports. Researcher Dr Krisak Yusi said, It's not unusual for a gene to have multiple functions, but before this we didn't know what regulated the production of tooth enamel. This is the first transcription factor ever found to control the formation and maturation of ameloblasts, which are the cells that secrete enamel. The finding could be applied to human health and, if used in conjunction with fledgling stem cell technology, could one day allow people to grow replacement teeth when needed. Alternatively, the knowledge could be used to strengthen existing enamel and repair damaged enamel, cutting decay and the need for fillings. Dr Cusey said, Enamel is one of the hardest coatings found in nature. A lot of work would still be needed to bring this to human applications, but it should work. It could be really cool, a whole new approach to dental health. Researchers hope that within 10 years we will be able to grow new teeth from stem cells, the so-called master cells which have the potential to be used to grow any part of the body. Scientists have successfully harvested stem cells from dental pulp, the nerves and tissue inside the teeth, and grown teeth in the lab which have been transplanted into mice. Other innovations on the horizon include drills that cut and polish teeth using nothing more than a blast of air, and a mouthwash that could do away with the need for fillings. Around 11 million Britons wear dentures, more than 1 million of them in their 30s or younger. The NHS, or the National Health Service, pays for false teeth for around 12,000 6 to 24-year-olds a year. However, the making of dentures is a dying art. The British Society for the Study of Prosthetic Dentistry has warned that time spent teaching dental students on the ins and outs of false teeth is now being devoted to lessons on tooth whitening, orthodontics and other techniques behind the much sought-after Hollywood smile. 85% of people claim to have good oral hygiene, but just two-thirds brush their teeth twice a day and nearly a third of adults have 12 or more fillings. And now to some feedback about the podcast. This one comes from the iTunes US store, and it's written by Mazzola, and the title is Always Entertaining. I really look forward to listening to this podcast. You never know what the subjects will be, but they are always fascinating, sometimes offbeat, sometimes surprising. Well-researched, well-selected articles and parts of articles from many sources. Almost like a box of chocolates for the mind. Most have a scientific, medical or sceptical bent, and almost all are interesting, weird or wonderful facts or events. I always wonder how I miss these things. But I suspect the host spends many hours combing lots of different sources. Many of the pieces feature great background music, which adds to the enjoyment and mood. It must take hours to put together, and the effort shows. Absolutely a great podcast. Well, thank you, Mazzola. It really does take hours to put together, but... When I get feedback like that, it makes it all worthwhile. I also received an interesting email from Rob, who lives in Canada. 
He says that he assembles bronze sculpture using various welding and sculpting techniques and listens to the podcasts while he's working. He also suggested that I could drink some more water while doing the recording, as sometimes I sound a little dehydrated. Well, that's probably true, Rob, because at the moment outside it's 36 degrees centigrade, which is around about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, so it is getting quite hot here, and sometimes I probably am a little dehydrated. And he also said as an aside, do I own birds? Well, no I don't. But living near the river here in Brisbane in Queensland, we quite often have a lot of native birds in the backyard and sometimes when I haven't got the room closed up with the air conditioning going, making the recording, you can hear the birds outside. So they are all natural and quite happy. Rob was also kind enough to send me a link to an article in the Fortean Times about some Russians who, 60 years ago this month, were found frozen hundreds of feet away from their camp slightly radioactive, one was burned and another was missing their tongue. It's quite a mysterious story and it's going to appear in the next episode of Mysteries Abound. So if you listen to that podcast, listen for that story. It looks like an interesting one. And remember, if you would like to give some feedback for the podcast, it is greatly appreciated and this can be done through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. My email address is origins at origins.info. And I have noticed in iTunes that the more feedback that the podcast receives, the higher it goes in the ratings on the featured podcasts part of the website. So if you would like to give some feedback, iTunes is the preferred place, as that's where I get most of the downloads, and it does create a much higher profile for the podcast. Much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com. The following article comes from the www.msnbc.msn.com website and it's from their technology and science section and it's an article written by Michael Riley. The Little Ice Age hastened the fall of Aztecs and Incas. Humans have been altering climate for longer than we ever imagined. The vast empires of the Incas and Aztecs were highly advanced. They kept detailed tax records, built elaborate temples, and at their height, Central and South America boasted a thriving population of as many as 60 million souls. But their grand civilizations bore another trapping of modernity. Scientists have found one that until recently was thought unique to our industrialized world, human-induced climate change. In the 16th century, the diseases Europeans brought to the New World decimated native peoples. With no natural defence against smallpox, yellow fever and a host of new exotic pathogens, 90% of the population was dead by 1600. We're talking about wiping out about 9% of the world's population at the time, said Richard Neville of Bellarmine College Preparatory School in San Jose, California. According to Neville and co-author Dennis Bird of Stanford University, the killing left a lasting impact on the global climate. Suddenly, as much as 50,000 square kilometres of cleared farmland was no longer being tended, an area slightly larger than California. And as the rainforest crept back in, 
it vacuumed carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in the process. In all, the authors estimate that reforestation of South and Central America could have removed up to 10 billion tonnes of carbon from the atmosphere. Around the same time, climate records show that global temperatures cooled about 0.1 degrees centigrade from 1500 until 1750. But in Northern Europe, the dip was far more dramatic and came to be known as the Little Ice Age. You had advancing glaciers, frost and snow in places it had never been seen before, Bird said. When you have a couple of years of bad weather, people take notice. But when you have had 200 bad winters in a row, that's something to write home about. You'd expect after a pandemic like that, you're going to see a recovery in land cover, said Jed Kaplan of École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne in Switzerland, who was not involved in the study. We see a similar sort of reforestation following a real crash in population after the Black Death, from 1350 to 1450. CO2 levels didn't drop nearly as much after the Black Death, perhaps three parts per million, compared to five to eight parts per million following the American pandemic. Neville and Bird admit that volcanic activity and a decrease in the sun's intensity probably both played roles in triggering the Little Ice Age. Still, Bird said, humid activity was undeniably important. Humans have been in altering climate for longer than we ever imagined, Bird said. We can use this as an analogy to what we're dealing with today with global warming, he added. We are going to have to have some drastic changes in our lifestyle and they have to be long-lived if we're going to get out of this mess we're currently in. And this article from the technology.simpatico.smn.cbc.ca website was sent to me by Lynn, who lives in Alberta in Canada. And it's entitled, Montreal Scientists Unlock the Mystery of Early Molecular Mechanism. Two Montreal researchers have proposed a new theory for a question that has long vexed evolutionary biologists. How did a mechanism thought to help build life self-assemble? Sergei Steinberg, a biochemistry professor at the University of Montreal, found the answer in the ribosome, a relatively large mechanism within the cell that takes RNA instruction and builds proteins. His discovery, made with the student Konstantin Bokov, has been published in the scientific journal Nature. Scientists have long wondered how chemicals spontaneously came together to create proteins before life itself began. Steinberg and Bokov's theory fills in a critical step in how life got started four billion years ago, said Stephen Mishnick, the Canada Research Chair in Integrative Genomics at the University of Montreal. A key breakthrough came when Steinberg found that chemicals could spontaneously come together and form something as complex as a ribosome. Previous theories had suggested only simple proteins could form spontaneously. 
This has been shown in a seminal experiment in the 1950s in which basic chemicals were combined in a flask, heated and zapped with electricity, creating basic proteins as a result. But proving that chemicals can spontaneously form simple proteins did not prove that spontaneous action could create more complex mechanisms. In the absence of such explanations, some people could imagine unseen forces at work when such complex structures emerge in nature, said Steinberg. Steinberg was able to show otherwise. He found the ribosome was put together using relatively simple structural rules. A bit like a three-dimensional puzzle. For critics who ask why spontaneous formation didn't lead to something other than the ribosome, Steinberg used mathematical models to show there was no other possibility. The ribosome simply wouldn't hold together if it were constructed any other way. The assembly followed rules that were logical and for which there were no alternatives, said Mishnik. This forces us to think about bigger structures. This type of thinking is important to understanding all sorts of structure. For instance, the next step might be to consider why proteins begin to form wrongly, spontaneously. Several neurodegenerative diseases occur when proteins start to malform, said Mishnik. Steinberg's research could give insight into how that happens and why. The following article comes from the www.space.com website and it's entitled A Natural Explanation Found for UFOs. Mysterious UFO sightings may go hand in hand with a puzzling natural phenomenon known as sprites, flashes high in the atmosphere triggered by thunderstorms. The dancing lights have appeared above most thunderstorms throughout history but researchers did not start studying them until one accidentally recorded a sighting on camera in 1989. Lightning from the thunderstorm excites the electric field above, producing a flash of light called a sprite, said Colin Price, a geophysicist at Tel Aviv University in Israel. We now understand that only a specific type of lightning is the trigger that initiates sprites aloft. Researchers have detected the flashes between 35 and 80 miles from the ground, far above the 7 to 10 miles where usual lightning occurs. Sprites can take the form of fast-paced balls of electricity, although previous footage has suggested streaks or tendrils. The cause or function of the flashes remains murky, but Price suggested that they could explain some of the UFO reports which have cropped up over the years. That might provide some solace for UFO enthusiasts disappointed by the human-caused hoaxes in the past. Both jetliner pilots and astronauts have previously reported sightings of sprites along with a different but equally mysterious phenomenon known as blue jets. Price and his colleagues have focused on winter sprites which appear only in the northern hemisphere's winter months. Their remote-controlled roof-mounted cameras can spot thunderstorms producing sprites far out over the Mediterranean Sea. Triangulation techniques have also allowed the researchers to calculate the dimensions of the sprites. The candles in the sprites are up to 15 miles high, with the cluster of candles 45 miles wide. It looks like a huge birthday celebration, Price said. 
Sprites may have some effect on the Earth's ozone layer, but researchers suspect that the global impact is small. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to episode 68, there is a link to this article, and within this article there is also another link to a video showing some Sprite streamers. And from the www.time.com website, one of their visions of the 20th century, an article by Shannon Brown Lee. When will we cure cancer? Sooner rather than later for a surprising number of malignancies, others we may just have to live with. Talk about wishful thinking. One might as well ask if there will be a war that will end all wars, or a pill that will make us all good-looking. It is also a perfectly understandable question, given that half a million Americans will die this year, of a disorder that is often discussed in terms that make it seem less like a disease than an implacable enemy. What tuberculosis was to the 19th century, cancer was to the 20th, an insidious malevolent force that frightens people beyond all reason, far more than, say, diabetes or high blood pressure. The problem is... The cure for cancer is not going to show up any time soon, almost certainly not in the next decade. In fact, there may never be a single cure, one drug that will bring every cancer patient back to glowing good health, in part because every type of cancer, from brain to breast to bowel, is different. Now for the good news. During the next 10 years, doctors will be given tools for detecting the earliest stages of many cancers, in some cases when they are only a few cells strong, and suppressing them before they have a chance to progress to malignancy. Beyond that, nobody can make predictions with any accuracy. But there is reason to hope that within the next 25 years, new drugs will be able to ameliorate most, if not all, cancers, and maybe even cure some of them. We are in the midst of a complete and profound change in our development of cancer treatments, said Richard Klausner director of the National Cancer Institute. The main upshot of this change is the sheer number of drugs in development, so many that they threaten to swamp clinical researchers' capacity to test them all. This welcome boom in cancer drugs owes its beginnings to one of this century's greatest scientific insights, that cancer is not caused by depression or miasmas or sexual regression, as people at various times have believed, but by faulty genes. Every tumour begins with just one errant cell that has been unlucky enough to suffer at least two, but sometimes several, genetic mutations. Those mutations prod the cell into replicating wildly, allowing it to escape the control that genes normally maintain over the growth of new tissue. This realisation has transformed cancer in little more than a decade from an utterly mysterious disease into a disorder whose molecular machinery is largely understood. 
Now, cancer biologists are in the midst of their second epiphany, the recognition that tumours evolve in Darwinian fashion as each succeeding generation of cancer cells accumulates genetic mutations. Survival of the fittest applies to cancer cells, says Richard Schliske, Associate Dean for Clinical Research at the University of Chicago. We now think of cancer not as a disease, but as a genetic process. This new view has sparked innovations that will manage the process and keep it from killing large numbers of people. We are going to see a real shift from diagnosis and treatment to prediction and prevention, declares California surgeon Susan Love, author of Dr. Susan Love's Press Book. Indeed, if all goes well with current clinical trials, women at high risk for breast cancer will soon be able to be screened with a device that removes a sample of breast cells through the nipple. If any cells show signs of the early mutations that lead to cancer, doctors can suggest the drug tamoxifen, which is believed to reduce the risk of breast cancer by suppressing precancerous cells. Drugs with fewer side effects that can also prevent breast cancer are already in the pipeline. Within five years, early detection will be available for many other types of cancers as well. A stool sample will be all that is needed to search for colon cancer cells on their way to becoming tumours, and drugs like the new COX-2 inhibitors, which are improved versions of painkillers, can prevent those precancerous cells from progressing. By the end of the next decade, a simple blood test could alert doctors to a wide variety of cancer precursors. Treatments for other more advanced cancers, however, are farther over the horizon than anybody can see. What is clear is that oncologists must take a page from the AIDS treatment and use a cocktail of drugs with very different modes of action to outsmart tumours that have already begun to spread or metastasize. That's because a tumour is made up of a hodgepodge of cells containing different genetic mutations, each of which allows it to wreak a different brand of havoc. Some mutations spur rapid growth, others prod nearby blood vessels into sprouting new capillaries, still others send cancer cells out into the bloodstream where they concede new tumours. Within 10 years, predicts Robert Weinberg, a cancer biologist at the Whitehead Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, we will analyse the mutant genes and then tailor-make a treatment for that particular tumour. One day there will be drugs to trip up a cell at each of the steps it takes on the path to malignancy. A patient with lung cancer, say, might undergo gene therapy, breathing in genetically altered cold viruses that don't cause infection but instead act as miniature delivery vans carrying copies of the P53 gene. Good copies of this gene, which is mutated in many cancers, can force some cancer cells to commit suicide. The effects of P53 could be bolstered with antibodies that slow tumours by attaching to the surface of the cancer cells and gumming up their ability to take over the body's growth factors, the specialised proteins that promote cell reproduction. If a tumour has acquired the mutations for spreading, the doctor of the future may call on matrix metalloproteinase inhibitors, a new kind of drug that can be taken orally to block the enzymes a tumour uses to break down the cells of surrounding tissue and invade it. Vaccines cobbled together from whole cancer cells or bits and pieces of those cells have been shown to boost the body's immune system, helping it recognise and kill tumours on its own. This was all a dream five years ago, marvels John Minna. 
Director of the Heyman Center for Therapeutic Oncology Research at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Also close to reality are the so-called anti-angiogenic factors, relatively non-toxic compounds that inhibit the growth of new capillaries. The idea behind this new class of drugs is that tumours cannot grow bigger than a few hundred thousand cells, about the size of a peppercorn, without growing their own blood supply system. Researchers and patients, not to mention the owners of stock in half a dozen biotech companies, are eagerly awaiting results of clinical trials of anti-angiogenic factors, which might be used in combination with chemotherapy to knock down big tumours and then prevent any surviving tumours from growing enough to do further damage. The assumption behind many of these futuristic scenarios is an idea that most researchers have begun to embrace, but that many patients will undoubtedly find difficult to accept. That is the prediction that certain cancers may require treatment for the rest of a patient's long life. Coming out of a century that declared war on the disease, a century that felt the only reasonable response to a tumour was to annihilate it, this may be hard to imagine. But turning cancer into a controllable condition is not so different from treating high blood pressure or diabetes. I don't think curing cancer is the goal, says Ellen Stovall, Executive Director of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. Instead, she says, it should be helping people live as long and as well as they can. No, we probably won't cure all forms of cancer in the 21st century, but we may very well learn to live with them. I'm broadcasting. And just to finish off today's podcast, something on the lighter side, a few stories from the worldwide weird. A designer has unveiled a full-face headdress made of real mice and rat carcasses on the fringes of London Fashion Week. A model paraded up and down the catwalk in the headdress which covered her whole face except her eyes, complete with rat tails dangling down at the front and whiskers tickling her chin. The creation was designed by French-born hairdresser and wig maker Charlie Lomindu, 22. I really like mice and rats, but everybody doesn't like them, and I just wanted to show people it could be really beautiful, he said after the show. Asked if he was worried about how animal rights campaigners might react, he said... It's better to make them, the rodents that is, beautiful, than give them to the snakes. Lumindu was not on the official schedule for London Fashion Week, but staged a show on the fringes on the final day of the event. And this story is sort of a follow-up from the one that came earlier about UFOs. Believers demand the CIA data on UFOs. The CNN tape shows it clearly. During the inauguration of President Barack Obama last month, a panoramic camera shot of the Washington Monument recorded a small, dark object racing across the sky. Was it a bird? Was it a plane? Or was it an emissary from an alien planet? 
internet opinion has been predictably divided. What kinds of birds can fly at 500 miles per hour? Asked one of several million viewers who have seen the video clip. But for a small group of dedicated researchers, the incident could scarcely have been better timed. High on the agenda at the 2009 International UFO Congress, opening in Lawland, Nevada, overnight will be the prospects for a breakthrough in a long and mostly frustrated quest to persuade the US government to come clean about the CIA's supposed contacts with extraterrestrial life over the past 50 years. Hundreds of delegates are converging on the Nevada desert to listen to speakers from 30 countries recount their extraterrestrial experiences. The ufologists are used to being mocked or ignored by the American media, yet in two key respects, their meetings this year are not entirely out of this world. Far from being disheartened by their failure to produce conclusive evidence of aliens, ufologists were electrified last year by the appearance over Stephenville, Texas, of a series of fast-moving flashing orbs seen by hundreds of people. Ufologists flock there in the hope of witnessing a phenomenon that some linked to a nearby military airbase. Behind the UFO debate lies a CIA statement that more than half the reported UFO sightings of the 1950s and 60s were caused by Cold War spy planes whose saucer-like designs were at the time kept secret. In a declassified report entitled CIA's Role in the Study of UFOs, 1947 to 1990, Gerald Haynes, a government historian, blamed Cold War hysteria for the deception. The CIA insists there has been no organised CIA effort to study UFOs since the 1950s. And finally, we all complain about the price of petrol or gasoline, as you call it, in the United States, but this poor guy in Spokane really was stung badly. Many people have complained about high gas prices over the years, but Juan Zamora has a story that beats them all, after he was charged more than $81 billion for a single tank of gas. Filling up for gas is routine for Juan Zamora on his weekly commute from Spokane to the Tri-Cities. I didn't know if I grabbed the jet fuel or the super. I don't know, I couldn't remember, Zamora said. On Tuesday, he stopped at a Richland Conoco station, fueled up and paid for $90 worth of gas. At least he thought he paid for $90 of gas until he got a phone call. A pre-authorization at an automated gas station dispenser was approved at 81,400,836,908 in Richland, Washington, the automated recording said. That's right, Zamora hadn't bought $90 in fuel. According to PayPal, he had bought over $81 billion in fuel. I think I dropped the phone once or twice, Zamora said laughing. I was about ready to look up the president's number to see if I could get a bailout package. Dumbfounded, Zamora tried contacting his bank, the gas station, even PayPal to figure out what was going on. They were arguing, did you buy gas at the gas station? And I said yes, but not for that amount. Well, so you did get gas. Yes, but for not that amount. No one seemed to believe his story. I didn't know if they were thinking I was talking about rubles or pesos or what, but they just didn't get the amount, he said. The problem was the charge to his account was very real. I broke it down, and it's like 550 million a gallon, so I don't get a lot of gas mileage and an expensive tank of gas, he said. 
The thing is that it would be statistically impossible for Zamora to have pumped that much gas. It takes about a minute to fill up a car with about $15 in gas. It would take roughly 10,000 years to pump $81 billion in gas. So, after spending a lot of time on the phone, Zamora finally got his answer, and as you might expect, it all came down to a computer glitch. The mix-up was that they used the merchant number for the amount. I guess that's PayPal's explanation of it, Zamora said. Finances are getting back to normal at Juan Zamora's home, though after this incident he's considering making some changes. I'm thinking about signing up for overdraft protection today, he laughed. Well, that concludes episode 68 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's show and we'll come back and listen to 69. And remember, if you want to do some feedback for the show, please do it through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. It is really appreciated. And to take out today's show is a song from the Podsafe Music Network by Kevin Wood and it's entitled Peace Within. Peace Within.